We're planting that seed with the gift and with the gospel. And we pray that we continue to see the harvest of those souls. For me personally, I just get the joy of being involved in the process of helping the invisible kingdom of our Heavenly Father become visible. Wayne Shepherd, and today on First Person, you'll meet Jim Liskey, the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, the organization founded by Chuck Colson. It was Chuck who started this Christmas outreach known as Angel Tree, and today that vision continues with Jim, whom you'll meet in a moment. If you join us regularly, you know that we also post each week's interview online for listening anytime it's convenient for you. You'll find today's interview and many others online at firstpersoninterview.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and download the podcast. We'd also enjoy hearing from you on Facebook. You can leave comments and suggestions at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. One of the amazing stories that followed the Watergate scandal of the 1970s was the spiritual conversion of Chuck Colson, who went on to found Prison Fellowship. Chuck also started Angel Tree, a great project that gives gifts at Christmas to the children of the incarcerated so they're not forgotten by their mom or dad who are behind bars. Well, today, I want you to meet Jim Liskey, who's carrying on that vision for both Prison Fellowship and Angel Tree. Now, Jim and I recently were in the studio together talking about Angel Tree, and we took a little extra time to spend with you here on First Person. And I found out that day that Jim grew up on a farm in Michigan. I loved growing up on the farm. I've often said that if I could have made a living at it, I'd probably stay there. (laughs) But there was certainly something tranquil and pastoral about being able to um, work the dirt, be with the animals. You truly uh, learn kind of cause and effect when you grow up on a farm. And you see the beauty of being able to put your work in, put your time into caring for the animals and see the product that God brings. I learned everything really that I know about stewardship growing up on the farm and caring for God's creation. Yeah, that was in Michigan. It was. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Michigan, although my dad was an auto worker. We lived on the farm itself, and it was a lot of hard work. Um, did you know that this is not how I want to spend my life, or was that your plan for your life at one point? Uh, you know, uh, much like your dad, Wayne, uh, my dad worked in a, a cement plant as an engineer up in northern Michigan. And uh, it, it was a farm that was about 200 acres, and, and we certainly enjoyed being kids on the farm and growing up, learning hard work, learning the value of hard work. Uh, but now it was really um, – Something that I knew that I would end up in the ministry. I felt the calling actually very early in really? life. Yeah, my mom tells a really funny story. I was nine years old, apparently. I don't remember it, but she shared it often. And I went up to the pastor of our church, and I, I told him that I wanted to be a pastor because I'd only have to work one day a week, and I could snowmobile the rest of the week, <laughs> of course, being from northern Michigan. And, well, uh, I knew I liked you for some reason, Jim. I really do. <laughs> well, she has reminded me several times that I certainly didn't have that one-day-a-week thing uh, accurate. So. <laughs> well, we both grew up in Michigan, and and I love snowmobiling, and uh, so we have a lot in common. So when did you come to Christ? And you grew up in a Christian home? I did, and my dad was always involved in church leadership, uh, was a, a deacon and, and the chair of the deacon board for many, many years, uh, had a wonderful childhood, and my mom and dad knew Jesus, but they were never judgmental. They journeyed with us. It was, uh, I think they knew grace-based parenting before the phrase actually happened. Mm-hmm. I was a senior in high school, and it was actually at a youth conference with Dawson McAllister. Oh, yeah. And Dawson McAllister gave the challenge, and uh, I responded, and uh, from that point, 
carried on, I knew I was going to end up in full-time ministry. So coming to Christ as a teenager then, did you you didn't go through the uh, the typical crisis of making your parents' faith your own faith. It was your faith at that point. It was. And, you know, if I look back, I can see that journey of kind of growing into that faith. But really as a teenager is when I owned it and really turned my life over to Christ and really knew that he was asking me to do, um, to do full-time in vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. So did you go right to college and seminary then? Was that the track for you? I did. I went right to college and actually did my BA in three years because I knew I was headed to seminary. So I did a music degree and uh, knew that that would uh, be uh, very useful for me in ministry. I loved music. Boy, a pastor with a music degree. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, those were the days where your first job was either in youth or music, right? So I kind of did, you know, the associate pastor deal coming out of seminary and was able to actually marry my wife uh, right after we were uh, done with college. and, And we went to seminary together. And that was a joy to do that with each other. And then we're off in ministry in our first church in Michigan. Tell me about your family. I have a wonderful family. Uh, Kathy and I have been married for over 30 years, and uh, we truly have been ministry partners. She, too, is very musical, has always been involved in worship uh, in the churches that we've served. Our daughter is 24 and married and and living in Oklahoma. Our son is 22, and uh, he is just finishing college. Both of our kids have been athletes. Our our kids are both college athletes, and so we've been able to really journey with them in that, sat in a lot of stands over the years, Wayne. Uh, But even more than anything else, I rejoice that our kids are following Jesus, and they've made their faith their own, have wrestled with taking it from mom and dad's faith. Uh, they, they haven't suffered from being, a past, from being pastor's kids, which I <laughs> applaud in them, and they're serving Jesus in their own beautiful yeah, way. It can be a malady, can it? So tell me about your first church. Uh, you know, it was in Bridgman, Michigan, just south of St. Joe Benton Harbor, and uh, the church was only nine years old, and I served with a wonderful man, Wynn Decker, who was in his late 50s. And Wynn took me under his wing, and he was a very practical, down-to-earth, solid biblical teacher. He gave me a lot of room to lead as his associate pastor and uh, really let me learn the ropes. He taught me real common-sense, practical ways of leading and loving and shepherding. And uh, I bless the Lord. I learned as much in those three names half years as I did in seminary, and really was able to kind of take the church out of its planting phase into its adult phase. Did you know that at the time that you were learning those things from him, or did it kind of come to you later? You know, it kind of came to me later. You know how it is. The older we get, the smarter our dad gets, and hindsight <laughs> is always perfect, right? Um, but Wynn was just a teacher, and um, Kathy didn't grow up in an evangelical family. And so for Kathy, our first church is where she learned to be a pastor's wife, and Wynn's wife, Harriet, just, just did a beautiful job job mentoring her and all the things that it meant to lead alongside of um, her mm-hmm. husband as as a pastor. How long did you spend in the pastorate, Jim? You know, I was in the pastorate for 25 years. We went from Southwest Michigan to Canada. I served, oh, uh, served a church in Ontario for eight years and then went from there to Calgary, Alberta and served a church there for five years before coming back to Southwest Michigan and, and finishing our pastoral career in Holland, Michigan. So you can go home again. I think you can. You know, it's one of those things we, Kathy and I would say in seminary, Lord, don't take us to Canada and don't take us to Michigan, right? And we ended up in those two spots. Yeah. I'm thinking we shouldn't have said yeah. not Hawaii. Well, our prayer was don't take us to Chicago. And here we've been for uh, low these many years. So 
Now, um, you were a pastor, but you must have been involved in some sort of prison ministry uh, to get the attention of Chuck Colson and Prison Fellowship. Yeah, you know, God does something in you before he does it through you. Um, I had a family member that went to prison about 10 years ago now. And uh, as a pastor, I'd been pastoring for 18 uh, years at the time. And I'd realized when my family member went to prison that as a pastor, I really had not paid much attention to the issue of incarceration and what that does to families. And of course, when it affects you and it affects your own family, you have a totally different perspective. And uh, I took the risk and I asked uh, my faith community one Sunday how many of them had individuals uh, in their family that were incarcerated in here in a white, middle-class, upper-middle-class community, a a Christian community. About 25% of our congregation had a family member who'd been incarcerated. Wow, that's high. And it really caused us as a church to really rethink um, ministry in light of Matthew 25, that the prisoner is included in that mm-hmm. list. And we did launch not-for-profits uh, that worked with re-entering citizens with uh, drug and alcohol addiction. And you did this placement. as a local church? Yeah, we did. We ended up launching four not-for-profits out of our church, uh, working in the state of Michigan with the governor at that time, Governor Granholm. We helped change some legislation dealing with re-entry. And uh, that led to issues of foster care and adoption and, and all kinds Kinds of issues surrounding hurting people, not just inmates. And in that, we worked with Prison Fellowship and, and met Chuck, and he became part of that ministry, was there for a couple events, and, and out of that came his challenge to me to join Prison Fellowship. Yeah, Chuck was such a dear, dear man. We all love Chuck so much and have great stories uh, yeah. to tell about Chuck Colson's life and his impact on all of us. I'm sure it was very personal for you, though. It was. I, I had the opportunity to you know, have lunch with Chuck, to sit and talk to him, to, to hear his personal story, to, to see his eyes well up with tears when inmates, former inmates, would line up to say thank you. Men and women that, that he never thought he'd impact because of his story and his life, but men who had done time in Michigan, who'd read his story, Born Again, and, and just lined up to shake hands and thank him for his life and his testimony. He was a hard-driving prophet, but he's also a very tender-hearted shepherd well, and pastor. he was a Marine. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, always a Marine. Yeah. So did your heart gradually get in step with Chuck and Prison Fellowship to the point that you joined the organization, or how, how did that happen? Uh, you know, really, with my family member, my heart got in step very quickly because of the pain of working with my family members. You know, when, when you're a pastor in a family, you are the family's pastor. And so working through my own grief and my own struggle and then helping my family members, um, I I really felt a kinship to families who had a family member in prison. And then when I would go into the prisons, I would sense what Chuck told me later on that he sensed, that these were people of value. Mm -hmm. And here we are warehousing them and pushing them aside and literally forgetting about them in our culture. These individuals are created in the image of God. So when Chuck and I started talking we really understood that um, I had a kindred spirit with him and a spirit uh, that was like his that he carried for many years. But it had to be humbling then to eventually be chosen as CEO, um, along with Chuck Colson's being the founder of Prison Fellowship. Yeah, that was almost kind of surreal. Um, when Chuck asked me to consider coming into this position, my first response was, no, I'm a pastor. I was very comfortable in my pastoral life. But Chuck had a wonderful way also of challenging people to consider what God wanted them to do. Coming up, we'll learn all about Angel Tree from today's guest, Jim Liskey, here on First Person. 
When you visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com, you'll see a link to Operation Mobilization. OM's overall mission is to mobilize people to share the knowledge of Jesus and His love with every generation and every nation. OM pioneers and leads initiatives to redeem lives, rebuild communities, and restore hope in over 110 countries. I invite you to support and pray for OM's missionary staff around the world. You'll find more information at firstpersoninterview.com. My guest today is Jim Liskey, who is CEO of Prison Fellowship. Most of us associate Prison Fellowship with the name of Charles Colson. Chuck is now with the Lord, uh, and several years before that, he really turned over the leadership reins, CEO position, to uh, you, Jim Liskey. And I want to talk to you more about that. Um, what were some of the challenges early on for you, Jim? Well, certainly, when you're following a founder with the kind of magnitude that uh, Chuck had, um, there are some adjustments and expectations. Uh, we had nine wonderful months with Chuck before he went home to be with the Lord, and um, Chuck did an awesome job intentionally passing leadership in that time. And uh, he he truly, we look back now and we we see that he had some type of a sixth sense yeah. in knowing that the Lord was taking him home soon. Because that can be the most difficult thing in the mm-hmm. world for the founder to take a back seat to his successor. It really, but you know, Chuck was such a servant, and uh, I know most people, again, saw this big, strong, almost bombastic voice at times, but the Chuck I experienced and those that worked closely with him truly knew that it wasn't about Chuck for him. It was about the ministry and the movement, Mm -hmm. and uh, so Chuck set us up well, but again, we talk about the fact there are many Chucks. Chuck talked about the platoon, the little platoons out there. There's the Marine There's the Marine in them, (laughs) and you know, all of us are part of that movement. Movement that Chuck started. There's so much about prison fellowship that we could talk about, but I want to focus in at this time of year, especially on Angel Tree. Uh, for those who don't know, describe Angel Tree, which has been going on for a number of years now. Well, I'll give you Chuck's definition. Chuck really felt that Angel Tree was the best thing that prison fellowship did because there were so many winners in it. Obviously, the child wins because they receive a gift from their parent with their parents' message on it, but also the inmate wins because the inmate is able to bridge that gap between prison and home. The chaplain wins because the chaplain is able to use Angel Tree in order to engage the inmate in a parenting conversation. And really, the local church wins because the local church is the one who gets to deliver the gift in their zip code and say to this family, hey, we love you. Would you would you come and join us at church? It's the best first step of doing some type of re-entry ministry, because when the inmate comes home, you bet that they're going to attend that church that cared for their family. And so it is something that we do. It's not just once a year. It starts at Christmas, and it goes throughout the year because of the great local churches that partner with us. So you have camping programs, et cetera, for the kids whose mom or dad is in prison. Thousands of kids every summer go to Angel Tree Camps. And uh, I was just at one in Hawaii, of all places, but 170 children attended camp, and there were 365 volunteers. 200 of them were ex-offenders who've come to Christ. Mm. And these men worked all the background logistics. They were servants making sure the tents were set up and the food was ready. And when the time was right, they came up on the platform and asked for the forgiveness of the children on behalf of their parents still in prison. 
Mm-hmm. And those children having the ability to give up and give away and, and get rid of that bitterness and that anger, to start their journey of healing, it was so beautiful to see it happen. Angel Tree Mentoring is happening around the country. We partner with a multitude of organizations, tutoring all kinds of things to help these kids recover from the mistake of their parents, not the mistake of the child. Right, right. The kids are innocent. They are. It's, it's mom and dad who are in prison. All right, I want to go deeper on the Christmas Project Angel Tree in just a moment, but give me the numbers. They're overwhelming. How many kids are affected in this way? They're, they're almost hidden from us in many ways, aren't they? 2.7 million children in America have an incarcerated parent in prison or jail. And the statistics show us that 50 to 70% of those children will end up incarcerated themselves. It, it truly is a tsunami that's coming um, behind what's happening in our prisons in America. Uh, we see juvenile detention numbers going up all over the country, and it's coming out of this bitterness and anger. I can't imagine. I have some individuals in my family who can and are living it, but I can't imagine what it's like to go to school and be the child who has an incarcerated parent. And I certainly can't imagine what it's like to be the child that goes back to school in January, hears all the other kids hearing what their dad or mom Mom got them imagine? for Christmas. Wow. But you have to hide. And that's really it, Wayne. Yeah. That's why we don't know the 2.7 million, because the children and the caregivers hide. It's filled with shame. Okay, so Angel Tree works this way. Donations come in. Mm-hmm. And volunteers then purchase the gifts. How do they find out what the kid wants? We um, actually do applications in the prisons. So we have volunteers, sometimes it's the chaplain, sometimes it's Christ-following inmates, will present the application to the incarcerated parent. That parent fills that application out, including possible gifts to give, a favorite color, favorite games. All right, so it's not just a blind gift. No, it, it's not really at all. tailored to the child. It's tailored to the child by the incarcerated parent. What we hear chaplains telling us is it's a great opportunity because some of these inmates literally at the next visit need to ask, honey, what's your favorite color? Oh, honey, what's your so favorite toy? Conversation, yeah. It helps that inmate actually get to know the child. Yeah. And when the gift is given, it's given to the child in the name of the parent who's incarcerated. Yes, in the name of the parent. And, and we vet the applications and we actually call the caregivers to make sure a gift gift from the inmate is a good thing. Sometimes that child isn't ready for a gift at that time, and, and we go back and cover that with the inmate and so let them know. you're very sensitive to that. We're very sensitive. This yeah. is all about the child. But yes, it comes in the parent's name, and the parent writes a message. And I'll tell you, Wayne, if you are part of reading a message to a child, which we ask the volunteers to read the message to the child, take your Kleenex, mm. because most of them are going to take your heart right out of your chest. So you need uh, people to donate. We do. You need volunteers. Mm -hmm. Take me into the prison. Tell me what it's like to interview those who are in prison and then eventually to show up at the house at Christmas time and to present that child a gift. What is that like? It causes you to understand, number one, how deep the hurt is, but number two, how great the grace of God is. Because there's hurt on the part of the parent who's feeling very guilty about what they've done. The child is feeling the great loss. 
but it is so gratifying to read that message to a child. Oftentimes, you know, kind of the the young adolescent boys will actually tear up Hmm. feeling the love of their father. The little girls tend to dance and jump up and down, right? They're just so excited that daddy has given them a gift. The little boys, you know, they oftentimes, they know it's going to be some toy and you know how boys like to roughhouse and they may remember that roughhousing with their dad. But, you know, sometimes, Wayne, it's a child who's never met their father or their mother. I can imagine. A child whose mother or father uh, went to prison before they were either old enough to know them or sometimes in the case of a dad, a child who still wasn't born yet. So this is an introduction of a child to a parent, an introduction to the individual they haven't met yet. And you have plenty of evidence that in the end, this does heal those relationships and bonds that incarcerated parent with the child so that when they are released from prison, there's something to build on. We have volumes of stories, literally. Uh, Just today, I was with a man who's now doing ministry to the incarcerated and those returning. He did time, and uh, he was dropping me off here at the studio, and he told me the story of his two kids being angel tree kids, and I didn't know that, but his son and daughter received angel tree gifts. His comment to me, quote, angel tree kept the bridge built between myself and my kids. Can you please tell people thank you for doing that? You know, if you put yourself in the place of that man or woman who's in prison, separated from their family, that's got to be the greatest pain of all, I would think. Well, you feel a double failure. Uh, Not only did you break the law, but now every year at Christmas and on birthdays, you're reminded you're the parent who's not there. You're the parent whose child has to come and talk to you through the glass. You're the parent whose child needs to go through a metal detector before they can come and give you a hug. Anything we can do to help alleviate that guilt lessens the reentry process and gives that child and that parent a greater opportunity to get connected, stay connected, and have a healthy relationship after prison. Jim, it's only a couple of weeks until Christmas. Is Mm -hmm. it too late to get involved this year? It is not. 1-855-50-ANGEL is the number your listeners can call to engage in in really helping present the gift and the gospel, Wayne. That's very important. Yeah, tell me about that. We present the gospel with the present. Uh, That's where restoration comes from, is is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, that's the only way a child is going to forgive a parent for this kind of pain. Uh, That child is not going to find inside their humanness the ability to say, I forgive you. They're only going to find that in a relationship with Jesus Christ and then being able to extend the grace they felt to their parent. And and when we present that gospel, um, we have a partner called One Hope that provides the gospel in in an age-appropriate form that we present to that child. Oftentimes, Wayne, we hear stories where the child, the young kids will take that gospel booklet and they'll present that back to their imprisoned parent as a Christmas gift to them in Mm. January and February. And we even have stories of unsaved inmates who signed their kids up for Angel Tree who came to Christ because their kids brought them the gospel message that they'd received. <laughs> and then we get thank you notes of how the child led the parent in prison to Christ. Give me the number again, Jim. one eight five 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 zero a n g e l. Help us deliver these gifts to the kids. And of course, we will put links to Angel Tree on our website for this awesome. program. And I'll mention that at the end of the program here today. What does this mean to you personally? Um, I guess we talked about growing up on a farm, and there's just that very simple principle that you prepare the soil, you plant the seed, you wait for God to do his thing, and then you reap the harvest. 
Um, really, when I look at Angel Tree, we're preparing the soil by taking the gospel to the inmate. Uh, we're cultivating it by giving that inmate the opportunity to sign their kids up. We're planting that seed with the gift and with the gospel. And we pray that we continue to see the harvest of those souls after God does his thing with the miracle of the gospel. For me personally, I just get the joy of being involved in the process of helping the invisible kingdom of our Heavenly Father become visible. That's Jim Liskey, the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship and the leader of the Angel Tree Project. Even though Christmas is right around the corner, there's plenty of time for you to get involved and give a gift so these children who have a parent or parents in prison are not forgotten. We've set up a special link at firstpersoninterview.com, which you can click on and it will take you to Angel Tree. There you can learn more about this opportunity and give. Make this Christmas special for thousands of kids this year, and in the process, help them learn about Jesus Christ and His love for them. Go to firstpersoninterview.com and click on the Angel Tree banner, or facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, we'll talk with author and speaker Liz Curtis Higgs about the women of Christmas. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.